we were seeing some of the patterns that were working and helping teams get work done you know, more efficiently with faster flow, with better feedback loops. And we were also seeing some of the patterns that didn't work so well. We talk about the sensing organization. And I, I certainly see many organizations as effectively blind. Imagine an amoeba-like proto-animal that basically kind of doesn't have any eyes or doesn't have any ability to sense anything. Today, I'm joined by Manuel Paish and Matthew Skelton right of the book Team Topologies, Organizing Business and Technology, Teams for Fast Flow. This episode is sponsored by Linear Beam. Give your dev team the power to improve with team-based metrics, high-risk code alerts, and the world's first project board based on real-time Git activity. Sign up free at linearb.io. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Dev Interrupted. I'm your host, Dan Lyons, and today I'm joined by Manuel Paish and Matthew Skelton, writers of the book Team Topologies, Organizing Business and Technology, Teams for Fast Flow. Guys, thanks so much for joining us on the pod today. It's good to be here. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Before we dive into your book, I'd love to give the audience uh, a chance to get to know you a little bit better. So, Manuel, you've been a thought leader in DevOps for years now. In fact, you helped found DevOps Lisbon. Can you tell us a little bit about what brought you into the organizational and team design space? Yeah, it still feels weird when we i hear someone say saying i'm a thought leader but y- yes i've <laughs> i've had that tag from tech beacon and, and others basically i've been involved with devops uh, since around 2011 so pretty much more or less when it started a couple of years later and so for me it was it made a lot of sense because my background is in computer science and I had a number of different roles in from development to testing to build and release engineering. And so this idea of we need to break down the silos and get teams to collaborate when they need to get work on things that are affect both teams or multiple teams, and that we should we cannot just be working in silos and expect things to, to improve. That made a lot of sense to me. And then I started DevOps Lisbon with a friend of mine a few years later, which has been quite successful. And, and I'm originally from, I am from Lisbon in Portugal. And so it was really great to see a community start forming around the ideas of DevOps over there. And we have, I think, more than 4,000 members now. So that's really great. But over time, and when I started working with Matthew, so we met at the conference in 2015, and Matthew had already started talking about DevOps topologies. And I found that fascinating because, again, was looking at the team side and what are the things that the challenges to improve the way that organizations work and get things done, basically. And so I started working with, with Matthew as well. And again, we were working around DevOps and continuous delivery, but often clients thought they what they need is better tooling and better practices. And that's really just the start of the story. You always end up realizing, actually, there are problems here in terms of how teams interact or don't interact and lack of understanding of the purpose of team and how they who are their customers and things like this. So it was around that time that I got started to really focus more and more on, on team design and interactions. Yeah, really cool to hear that DevOps Lisbon is 
4,000 plus members. That's awesome. And with the team topology stuff, definitely, you know, not probably not talked about enough as you think about solutions for moving faster and that type of thing. Matthew, for you, in addition to coining the term team topologies, that somewhat describes how teams are arranged into an organization, you're a well-recognized name in the DevOps community. But when I was doing some research for this pod, I also saw that you have a master's degree from Oxford in neuroscience. How has your experience in that field informed your work in software and org design? That's a great question. Thank you. So yeah, I my first degree was from University of Reading in the UK in cybernetics and computer science. On this computer science side, the core ideas around networking and operating systems and writing software and all that kind of stuff. But we also did, I also did a bunch of stuff around cybernetics, which is control systems, basically the science of control theory, feedback loops, that kind of thing. But it was applied to all sorts of different situations. We obviously in the lab, we did experimental stuff with, with electronics and things that are easy to experiment with, but the theory was applied well, the principles were applied to situations like organizations, in fact, but also planets, so a planetary science, and we did some stuff around psychology and so on, so systems as a general principle. Some of that stuff got me interested in how the brain works. I went and did, I got a scholarship actually to do the master's in, in Oxford, a master's in neuroscience. Now, the word neuroscience nowadays, 20 years later, means can mean something a bit popular a bit like popular science about how people think the brain works it doesn't mean that certainly certainly didn't mean that back then it meant this is biology this is experimental biology how does a brain work how do we understand how do we perceive and i think the my my experience there informed the, the teen topology stuff informed how i approach these things on, on a few different levels it helped me get uh, some interesting insights into kind of individual psychology the kind of in particular how perception works. So perception as in seeing, listening, touch, that kind of, some of the ways in which perception can be modulated. So it gave me insights into sort of how individual animals can sense things. And that's certainly something we've applied to the organization as a whole, kind of the organization as an organism. We talk about the sensing organization. And I I certainly see many organizations as effectively blind. Imagine like a an amoeba, also like proto-animal that basically doesn't have any eyes or doesn't have any ability to sense anything. It just bumps around in its environment. And that's what lots of organizations seem like to me because they don't have any real way of sensing how things are working. But also actually at a, at a bit more detailed level, a lot of people think, think that the brain has got, it's got millions and millions of nerve cells, neurons, and they just think they're all interconnected. Some people think each cell is somehow connected to every other cell. It's just a, a big kind of interconnection. And that's just not true at all. And that the brain has, has got very specific connectivity between different kinds of neurons and nerve cells. And it's that kind of specificity, that kind of specific sort of connect, connectivity, that is, is part of the reason why particularly human brains, but animal brains and so on are so amazing. It, it's, it, there's some very specific kind of interactions between different parts of between different parts of the brain that definitely influenced my thinking on the three interaction modes that we talk about in team topologies and the four specific types of team i'm not trying to recreate the brain but there's definitely different kinds of brain cells and there's different kinds of interactions between them and and i'm, I'm pretty sure that influenced my thinking in, in terms of the, the different team types and interaction modes for sure amazing super fascinating stuff i always love how 
a lot of guests come on here and their past experience will influence what they do with their book or the way that they perceive a system or, or something like that. R really fascinating. And I wonder if you've ever described to an organization in your consulting, like, hey, you're like an amoeba right now. And we'd like to see... <laughs> We'd like to see you more like this. I don't know how that would go so over. Might not go down so exactly like that, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the two of you have been working together, you know, for several uh, years now, and you wrote the book together, the Team Topologies book, which has been recognized as a top new product management and business book. So doing really well there. Manuel, would you mind giving us a quick intro into the book and how it came to be? Sure. Like I said earlier, we were doing consulting with clients around the world back in 2015 um, until 2018, more or less, which is when we were actually writing the book. And then it came out in 2019. Effectively, this consulting work and also looking at what other organizations were describing, for, in particular at the DevOps Enterprise Summit that happens every year, we were seeing some of the patterns that were working and helping teams get to work done you know, more efficiently with faster flow, with better feedback loops. And we were also seeing some of the patterns that didn't work so well. And we felt that it was important and there was a lack of having a structured body of work, if you like, that was talking about this. I think it was Jeff Susner who said that we did the home DevOps homework around how to organize teams and interactions, which is something that no one really had talked much about because it's maybe not so easy. And so some people say Team Topology is a framework, a DevOps framework. Other people say it's a methodology. I tend to look at it as it's a collection, starting with constraints. What are some things that we need to be aware of when we're trying to organize teams for fast flow? Things like Conway's law, the fact that there are different trust boundaries, that it's not the same to be part of a, a team, seven people compared to be part of a group of 20, 30, up to 50 people and so on. So the different boundaries of trust, uh, things like cognitive load, that teams have a limit on how much cognitive capacity they have. And so we should be mindful of that when we're signing work, when we're making demands on teams. So those are the constraints. And then we talk about what Matthew already mentioned, some useful ways to think about the types of teams. So what is the mission of different teams? How do we improve the interactions between teams, make them more intentional with clear goals for the interactions? And then also, how do we sense, which Matthew mentioned, how do, does the organization able to sense when we actually need to course correct? Maybe we need some new kind of teams, or we need to have more of these sort of interactions to, to address some problems that we have. And so not just having the, the patterns of what types of teams interactions, but also how do we evolve this over time? We adapt continuously to new challenges rather than expecting that there is one single model for the organization that's going to work forever because it it doesn't. Yeah. One way that I've seen the two of you describe your work as being practical, step-by-step -step adaptive model for org design. You've said that organizations need a team-first approach. And Matthew, you already brought up there's four fundamental team types. There's also three team interaction patterns. Matthew, can you talk to us about 
both your process for developing some of these models and actually what are the models? Like what are these team types? So the starting point is what we call stream aligned team. So it aligns to a stream of change inside the organization, whatever that kind of stream of change is. In other words, there's a kind of continuous flow of software systems, so software changes. And the streamlined team is a starting point. It has end-to-end responsibility for a particular, say, product or service or domain or thing that we're building. And end-to-end, in other words, there, there are no handoffs. We're not handing off to anyone. And that's because handoffs between one team to another is one of the worst blockers to a fast flow of change. You can model that mathematically using some of the principles from people like Donald Reinertsen and mathematical queuing theory and things, but or you can just you can just look at it in an organization and say, you know, each team is waiting on multiple other teams. I mean, in some organizations, what's called flow efficiency, which is the amount of time that teams actually spend doing real work, is incredibly low. A typical flow efficiency for lots of organizations is 15%, 15, 15, 15%. Which means that 85% of the time, the vast majority of the time, is not spent doing work, is spent waiting on other teams. That's just incredibly ineffective, incredibly inefficient as well. And so what we're trying to do is, is to set up our organization for a fast flow of change. So our starting point is a streamlined team, end-to-end responsibility of, for, for everything in relating to that bit of software. They've got a, a cross-functional mix of skills. And the other three team types are really there to support and, and help and enable the streamline. The only reason to have what we call an enabling team, what we call a complicated subsystem team, and what we call a platform team is really to help achieve a fast flow of changes in these multiple different streamlined teams. And those changes need to be compliant and rapid and safe. In other words, done in a way which which is is not breaking not breaking the systems. It's not we're not leaking data. And we're compliant in terms of financial compliance or, or data compliance or whatever. But though that's the only reason. So, for example, what we call a platform, the only reason to have a platform really is to enable a rapid flow of change in the teams that are using the platform. In the past, people might have used a platform for doing things like consolidating licenses or, or sharing infrastructure or whatever. Those things are fine, but not for us, not the starting point for why you should have a, something like a, an intern platform. It changes the viewpoint if you start with a fast flow of change and the re- the realization you need to limit cognitive load inside these teams. You can't just keep piling on more and more stuff. You can't just ask a team to be responsible for more and more things. At some point, you've reached the limit of their cognitive ability, and therefore, and then you've got a choice. What do you do? So that was our reasoning around the, these four different types of teams. We wanted to find the smallest number of different kinds of team to make it much clearer, so that people can have more directed conversations about whether some activity is a good thing or a bad thing. Streamline team has long-term ownership of a particular part of the system. Platform team is more like a grouping of other teams. But again, that has long overall has long-term ownership of a kind of platform product. Complicated subsystem team is it works on uh, something where with very specific skills, typically around mathematics type skills. Maybe it's video processing, it's some complicated logic. And those three types of team all build and, and run something. The enabling team does not own any piece of software. They are there as experts to help, typically help streamline teams to increase their knowledge, increase their awareness, adopt a new approach, something like that. And the enabling teams act as a boundary spanner, spanning across multiple kind of organizational boundaries to detect when there are kind of problems, to understand when we need to invest in new skills, when we need to build something new in the platform, when we need to decommission something. Totally understand. Manuel, can you highlight some examples of organizations that you think are excelling at 
this type of team development and how they're being organized? Yeah, so we actually have on our website, teamtopologies.com, we have some industry examples, which are quite interesting, the ways in which different organizations have used not just team topologies, but also other approaches to inform their organization design and evolution. So for example, we have Food Asylum. So what they did was look at team topologies together with Wortley mapping, which is a sort of a way of thinking, strategizing in terms of how our products are going to evolve, both customer-facing products and internal products, so that we make better decisions in terms of what should we build, what should we rent or buy, and how these things are going to evolve over time. So they did really interesting work, not just applying the the team patterns that we talk about, but also actually thinking about their portfolio, thinking about where we are now and what we think is going to happen. Because for different stages, if you like, of, of a given product, you might need to adapt the teams as well. If now we have we had a product which now is mostly something that we rent or we use as a third party rather than build ourselves, then the the kind of teams we need. Uh, change or the team that maybe was responsible for that product now can have different responsibilities. So that's quite an interesting example. They also used a platform and focus a lot on that. There's also another one from a company called Pure Gym, which they applied multiple ideas from team topologies, aligning, understanding the stream. So that's actually something many people, I would say, overlook a bit in, when they read the book. We actually need to start with understanding what are the business streams like, what are the value streams. And when we're talking about software monoliths, actually, I would suggest inside any software monolith, there's a business monolith, right? There's a tangling of different business concepts probably inside that monolith. And so we actually need to start identifying different streams of value that are more or less independent so that we can then align teams to those independent streams. And that's what... Uh, peer gym did which i thought was was pretty interesting and also they realized that we can sit down and think about what is a good model for us today but there's nothing like actually giving it trying it out and seeing getting if we we align teams to this sort of model and then actually building in the time to realize and discover, does this work? Does this help us or not? Because you see many organizations where they make a decision and they change their teams. They do that decision as if it's a given that it's going to be better. And you don't know until you actually try it. And so when we have a few other examples as well, more around platforms, companies like Uswitch and Cross, and we're obviously working with different clients. And so Hopefully, some of those will become industry examples as well that we can put on teamtopologies.com. Yeah, that's really interesting. A lot of the teams that I'm working with or orgs in our community at Linear B, they talk about what they call like the Spotify model, which typically means I'm trying to break up my software teams into these self or I think you would call them streamlined teams that have all the capabilities needed to deliver end to end. One of the questions that I get from the community often is, how should I think about quality or where should I put QA or automation? Do you have an opinion of where that type of work should go? 
Yeah, for sure. Definitely, it should not be a separate team. So fundamental starting point, fast flow change, avoid handoffs. So do not hand work from one team to another. You will That will absolutely kill a flow of change. That means, traditionally speaking, lots of organizations had a, for some reason, had a separate testing or QA department. That's a bad thing anyway, but it's definitely bad when, we've got, when we need a fast flow of change. But it also goes for a separate operations department. If you've got a separate kind of group of people who are running the software, who are on call for that software and are running it in the live systems, that is also effectively a handover. You're handing over software from development to operations. I mean, that that's why the whole DevOps movement came out 15 years ago, whatever it is. And that model is, is well understood not to be very effective for lots of reasons. So fundamentally, yes, you should not, have, should not have any handovers of the work from one team to another before that software goes live, or even after the software goes live, really. It should be the same team. Build and run for software is the way that gets the tightest feedback loops and aligns the best incentives for things like operability and reliability. But some other potential down, some other potential sort of awkward patterns for teams is where they're aligned around technology. That can also be be less good as well. Do we have, are you aligned around a particular programming language? Are you around, aligned around a particular, I don't know, cloud provider or database technology, something like that? In particular, having a separate kind of database administration or database programming team separate from the applications that, that we're building on it? Yep. Sort of generally speaking, doesn't really work. Not with a fast flow of change. If you, Look, if you're in an organization that is doing something Possibly like traditional research and development R&D, and you do not need a fast flow of change, then some of the team's bodies' ideas might not be suitable, might not be needed or might not work. Totally fine. But for any organization that's using software to differentiate its services and needs a rapid flow of change and to be able to course correct very quickly, for example, to address a zero-day vulnerability and get a, get a patch or a fix out for that really quickly – which is, to be honest, is a, it's a lot of organizations in pretty much every single sector, then a fast flow of change is what we should be aiming for. And so therefore, we avoid these handoffs from one team to another. Right. A lot of teams are now going fully remote, especially so- software teams. Some of that has happened because of the COVID you know, outbreak. Some teams were already like that before the pandemic. For software teams that are working fully remote, does this concept that you're talking about still hold up or is there any lessons that you all learned as more and more teams are going into a remote, more asynchronous model? So, yes, we found that most of the, uh, if not not everything in the book uh, is, is very applicable to, to remote work. There's only one, one small part where we talk about how to set up the physical environment to promote the best interactions between teams. But the ideas are applicable in remote setup. In fact, what some organizations are starting to realize, at least the ones that want to understand how do we leverage the remote work to our advantage rather than trying to replicate the office way of working into the remote, which doesn't always work very well. But the ones that are actually actively trying to leverage the remote or hybrid and in their benefit, they realize that we need even more kind of intentional ways of teams to interact, to collaborate, to have better understanding of how they're related to other teams, how do they find information that they need. So things that we talk about in the book, like the team API, thinking about trust boundaries also in in virtual communication space. So the virtual workspace also needs to, to take into consideration there are different trust boundaries, depending on size of groupings, 
of teams. So yeah, in general, we've, what we've seen is that organizations are even more interested in, in the ideas of team topologies because it helps them deal with this new uh, model of remote or hybrid uh, work. Yeah, a lot of the teams are looking to transform the way that they're set up, designed, how they worked. Some of those older school, traditional, like I I would call them siloed models, as you're saying, are not working as well. I want to thank you both. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the pod today and telling us more about team topologies and also how we can improve and get to a more streamlined approach. No problem. Thank you. It's been, been great to be here. We'd just like to, again, the Teen Supporters Academy. So if you go to academy.teensupporters.com, you'll get there. And over time, there'll be more and more uh, courses that people can take, all self-paced video training, all either featuring me and Manuel, or at the very least curated by, by me and Manuel from a very strong Teen Supporters perspective. Yeah. And the other reference is teamtopologies.com that we mentioned. So all the creative comments and examples and infographics is all there. Absolutely. Yeah. So everyone who's listening, definitely check out Team Topologies Academy and teamtopologies.com and be sure to join the Dev Interrupted Discord community. That's where we keep this type of conversation going all week long. You can find all of this information in the links below. And guys, thanks again for coming on the pod. No problem. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you.